0: So, Will. Yes? We got a newspaper movie on our hands. Uh, one of the best kinds of movies. It's right up there with the baseball movie as just a rock-solid genre.
1: Well, luckily, you got two in one here,
0: honestly. A thing that thrills me. Obviously, all the sports footage in this movie is just, like, clearly stock footage. But nonetheless, like, I still enjoyed watching those football games.
1: It is fun to watch football from 1942, a very different game.
0: Uh, Not to mention, those football games featured Notre Dame and Washington, so they were perfect for me.
1: But I am curious, as a genre, what is your favorite newspaper movie?
0: So, I have to mention that my beloved Great Muppet Caper is technically a newspaper movie.
1: I mean, you must.
0: Uh, Kermit and Fozzie are identical twin reporters for the Daily Chronicle. And the whole movie is about them chasing the story. They've got to get the story of who's stealing Lady Holiday's diamonds. Specifically, the fabulous baseball diamond. There is also a baseball sequence in The Great Muppet Caper.
1: They really go hand-in-hand, hand, huh? They
0: really do, yeah. But setting that incredible movie aside, which features Gonzo as a photojournalist obsessed with just taking pictures of birds, I think my answer might be The Post. Which is also a cliche for me to pick the Spielberg movie. But... What I love about The Post is that it's a movie about the process of investigating a story and deciding whether it is a story, right? The climax of that movie is Meryl Streep saying, let's do it over and over again, deciding to print a news story. It is a good movie. I was thinking of Spotlight. Uh, You know, an incredible movie, a great newspaper movie. I'm embarrassed I didn't think of Spotlight.
1: (laughs) I was surprised that you picked The Post over Spotlight. I would argue that Spotlight is the better movie.
0: Spotlight is the better movie. I mean, The Post has a great scene where you're stressed out watching a guy put change into a payphone. But Spotlight is just, like, stem to stern fantastic stuff. There was a day, like, a couple months ago, I just, like, walked into the room and my wife had Spotlight playing on HBO. And I was like, well, I can keep doing some grading while Spotlight plays. And then it was like when I find Jurassic Park on TV. Like, I just found myself watching Spotlight. That would not be background for me. No, it's an incredibly watchable movie. It's the kind of thing, like, it is kind of like Schindler's List in that it's a movie about an incredibly serious topic, but it's so well made that it's, like, perversely fun to watch.
1: It's, like, you wouldn't say it's fun to watch, but it is very engaging and gripping, and yet not hard to watch.
0: Right. Right. It's not Silence. Yeah, where it you come out of the movie like... feeling like I've just been through something.
1: Yeah, it's not punishing.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think like what the most recent like, like new media movie I've seen is. And I hate to say it, but I think it's like some of the bad movies we watched in 2023, right? Where like in Love Again, the Celine Dion movie, Sam Heughan works for like some weird not BuzzFeed.
1: Don't they have a print version?
0: Maybe there's definitely a digital version that seems to take priority, but if you tell me there's a print version, I believe you. And then there was that uh Gina Torres movie, was Gabrielle Union the lead? And that was like a fashion movie, but they were also like what media they were publishing was a big part of that story.
1: What was that called?
0: I genuinely don't know. It was like an incredibly forgettable name,
1: kind of a forgettable movie, too.
0: Well, yes, uh, it was called The Perfect Find, that was it, but like. I'm about to say something disgusting. We do not yet have, like, the great media movie of the content era.
1: You are right, though. They haven't made the, like, I mean, it
0: sounds dumb, but they haven't made the TikTok movie. No, I, I mean, that's going to be the Russo Brothers TikTok Hercules, I assume. I know I've told you that the Russo Brothers have signed on to do the Disney live action Hercules, and they've said it's inspired by TikTok.
1: <sighs> Yikes. That's all I can say to that.
0: No, the closest to like a new media movie that we've gotten, I feel like, is like Eighth Grade, which is a YouTube movie in a way. It
1: does use YouTube well,
0: but it's about a person with no following.
1: Yeah. There hasn't been a movie about like a famous YouTuber.
0: Jesse Eisenberg directed a movie that was at Sundance two years ago and came out at some point in 2023 called When You Finish Saving the World, about a kid who like is a fairly successful. Um, I think he, like, is, like, a YouTube song guy, like, song teen, and that movie's okay. Um, it's, like, only kind of about the YouTube of it all.
1: I mean, I would argue this is only kind of about the newspaper of it all.
0: I would, I would, I guess you're right. I don't know, maybe it's still just the other two. The other two has understood the media of today, and and film hasn't gotten there.
1: I think, in our era, TV is probably better suited to rapidly respond to the media environment.
0: Well, yeah, TV is more immediate. You know, it's only on yeah. TV that you would have something like The Game minute.
1: What a great show. The best part of that show is their willingness to use actual studios. Yes. That's what really elevates it. Like, the fact that he is in talks with Disney and not, like, Schmizny,
0: Right, to play the first openly gay character in a Disney movie. <laughs> because if Blobby were straight, he'd be in bed with a human woman. <laughs> I
1: can't imagine Disney was thrilled by that.
0: Look, whatever. The fact that that came out like the same week as the press cycle on how Elemental had Pixar's first non-binary character (laughs) and it's a blue blob with no lines. It was perfect. Elemental's such a weird movie. Is it
1: worth watching?
0: Uh, maybe at home, maybe. There is some pretty animation in it. But... I I can't remember who it was like some film critic on letterboxd just described it as catastrophic metaphor collapse where Hmm. the movie is actually at its best when it's just a romantic comedy, which is a genre Pixar has never done. But the metaphor about like intolerance and immigrant communities, it's like really about immigrant communities just like can't really sustain the complete lack of logic of their element society.
1: It seemed to me that that was going to be pushing it a lot.
0: Yeah. It's a weird movie. It's better than I expected it to be without quite being good. Yeah. And it looks good, but it, you know, it looks like you expect a Pixar movie to look, which is good without being standout. And 2023 just like was a pretty solid year for animation elsewhere with Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Boy and the Heron, probably some stuff I'm forgetting.
1: It is interesting. I feel like they haven't done, that I can remember, they haven't actually done a sequel in a while.
0: Well, coming up, we got Inside but Out 2 But now we this year. have
1: Inside Out 2 coming, yeah. Which I'm not thrilled about, but I will say when I learned that there was a character named Ennui, I got a little more on board.
0: Yeah, that's just not a story that demanded a sequel to me, which is the same way I felt about Finding Nemo. and. If you ask me to describe the plot of Finding Dory to you, I like could maybe do it, but I wouldn't swear to it.
1: I agree, and I don't think they should have done it, but
0: I do think the idea of having teenage angst in a movie is kind of funny. Here's my problem with the Inside Out sequel adding more emotions, is that the original Inside Out shows us the controls in other people's heads, and they just have the same five emotions that Riley did. Like, the first movie does not support the notion that you gain more emotions as you get older.
1: Yeah, I don't know. We'll see how it is. But Look, I hope it's it's good. It's kind of something I can forgive because being a teenager is
0: a lot of emotions. Yeah, frankly, my real, not even hope, like the thing that that has me going with Pixar this year is that all of these straight to Disney Plus Pixar movies are getting theatrical releases in the first few months of 2024. So this is the opportunity to see Soul, Luca, and Turning Red on a big screen.
1: Which, Luca and Turning Red are some of their best for a while.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think Soul will be better. Like, if I can see Soul in Dolby, I think I'll appreciate that movie much more than I did in 2020.
1: Yeah. And I would love to see Luca in theaters.
0: That's such a sweet little movie. Turning Red is probably their best one in like since Toy Story 4, at least. I have a real soft spot for Onward, which is the second to last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic. I have rewatched it since then, and I think it holds up. I need to rewatch Turning Red. I really liked that movie. It's criminal that none of those songs got nominated for the Oscar. The It's not Boys for Now. It's, well, oh gosh, what is that band called?
1: Boys for Now.
0: That's the Bob's Burgers one, right? It's so good, though. Oh, Four, four Town. Four, four, four Town. So, Woman of the Year. <laughs> Woman, okay, yes. So, did we do the cold open? The cold open was newspaper movies. I've totally lost the thread.
1: Oh my god. You said the post and I said
0: spotlight. Um, Neither of us said all the president's men, which I have not seen since high school. We've also got Newsies. Uh, Yeah. His Girl Friday. Gotta say, pointedly did not pick Newsies, a bad movie. Very much did not. But, okay, yeah. No, I think you're right. We We should move into this movie.
1: So... Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm
0: Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense?
1: And is there anything weirder and better than Katherine Hepburn in a tuxedo saying, hello, daddy?
0: She is like the hottest woman ever in the 1940s. Oh, by far. Like, we did the Philadelphia story last year, with this too, I'm just like, good lord, every time she walks on screen. It's her confidence, I think. And it's the pants. It is the pants. Are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, we will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are talking about the first pairing of Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy In George Stevens' 1942 film, Woman of the Year. What did you
1: think of this movie, Will?
0: I thought it was a pretty good time.
1: I, you might be surprised to learn, did not care for the ending. It was a pretty good time. I think the beginning held me more than... I think the movie lost steam for me. Yes. I think that right at the beginning, the two of them are like really playing back to back. And then once they get married, everything kind of gets exaggerated too much.
0: I think on the one hand, it is fun that the movie dispenses with their fighting, but then they fall in love. It dispenses with that pretty quickly because that can be tiresome. The thing is, it is fun to watch them fight at the beginning. And so it feels like we maybe do it almost too quickly.
1: It is a tough balance, and I think that the two of them butting heads without the emotional stakes of being in a marriage is more fun to
0: watch. Right, because they are both very good at their jobs. They just find one another's jobs annoying. Right. And they're not willing to say that once they're married.
1: And I mean, they made her,
0: like, a bit over the top in her career and competence. Okay, that's funny, <laughs> though. I love that. That Catherine Hepburn in this movie plays the daughter of a diplomat. She, like, grew up abroad. She speaks, like, eight languages. And is just, like, constantly, like, calling up presidents and dictators on the phone to get one quote for a column. She's not even a reporter. She's a columnist. And then it's just, like, throwing these international soirees where nobody speaks English. And she is rich. Well, she is basically Catherine Hepburn in that sense where she has, like, the huge family estate in Connecticut and she lives large in New York.
1: Yeah. I mean, she is. She very much reminds me in upbringing of Catherine Hepburn in terms of, you know, like the very rich and yet liberal Connecticut elite who yeah. let her, you know, wear her
0: pants and have a career, but also just like so much money. And the thing is, I love Catherine Hepburn, so I have an enormous level of patience for this.
1: <laughs> me too. The funny thing to me is just like. Every language being spoken
0: with a weird transatlantic accent. Yes. Right. Like when she is speaking Spanish, it sounds like no Spanish speaker in history.
1: No, like she is
0: so clearly reading these phonetically off of a piece of paper. But doing it well, I will say, like it is always identifiably that language.
1: It's the confidence.
0: That's the thing. She's so good. My favorite language moment in the movie is when she first invites Spencer Tracy over And he thinks he's coming over for, like, a one-on-one hangout. And he discovers that everyone is just speaking in different languages. He can't talk to anyone. He finally hears two guys in another room talking in English about, like, the stock market. He walks in so excited to talk to these guys. The minute he says something, they look him up and down, look at each other, and switch to Spanish.
1: That was so
0: funny. It's incredible.
1: I felt bad for poor Spencer Tracy.
0: But he also was kind of a dick. Right. The movie is fun. It's got a lot of good jokes, a lot of good character moments. I think the issue with it ultimately is what you talked about, which is like where it lands in gender politics is disappointing for the character it creates in Tess Harding. Because ultimately, like the Spencer Tracy character is a guy who can't accept that he has a high-powered wife, right? Like, in the immediate details, the things that she does that upset him make sense, right? It makes sense for him to be upset that she doesn't seem that interested in what's going on in his life. It makes sense for him to be upset that, like, she doesn't really seem to think about him when they're not together. But to him, these frustrations are clearly part of a larger feeling that she ought not to be the kind of career woman that she is.
1: And I think that the movie, I think, is trying to make a balance.
0: Right. It's trying to thread this needle that it ultimately can't.
1: I think you could even tell this story today. And you could do it in a much more interesting way. And I think you could even make it where, like, Tess is in the wrong in terms of how she treats Sam. But the ultimate story being that like a woman shouldn't have this much power is what makes it a problem yes like adopting a child without telling her husband objectively bad also funny but also funny because she is also so status obsessed and like
0: the whole setup of that is funny where she's like i recognize that like our marriage has not been working the way that it should and he's like correct and she's like. Would it be better if we added another person? And I'm like, girl, that will not save your marriage. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I, I think we should do that. And she's like, it's already done. And he's like, oh, man, like, all right, you're pregnant. Let's go. And she's like, no, let's bring in this seven-year-old. Who doesn't speak English. <laughs> a little Greek boy in a sailor suit. He is a cute little guy. Yeah, he has no lines. It's great. He says
1: a few things in Greek.
0: So at the end of the movie, which obviously we'll, we'll circle around to again, After Sam has left Tess, because he, like, won't put up with the way she treats him, she eventually, like, finds out where he's living, goes there, attempts to cook him breakfast, but fails, I will say, hysterically.
1: I think this is
0: based off of Katherine Hepburn trying to cook in the kitchen. This scene made me think of that story that was going around about Elon Musk at the Twitter headquarters, and how he, like, became obsessed with Pop-Tarts there because he had, like, never eaten Pop-Tarts, but they stocked them. And he was like, oh my gosh, like, Pop-Tarts are amazing. And then one day he figured out that you could put Pop-Tarts in the toaster to make them taste better, and it, like, blew his mind. Watching the waffle iron in particular... (laughs) It's, like, breathing. Because
1: she puts this huge amount of yeast into the dough. In the waffle batter.
0: batter. So it's just, like, growing and breathing. She... I don't know what she was supposed to do with that coffee, but she did it wrong, and it's boiling over.
1: I don't think you put, like, that was made of glass. You wouldn't put that on the stove.
0: No. It would shatter. Like, watching her try to separate eggs and completely fail, like, it is very funny. It's almost like silent comedy, right? Because she's alone in the scene for most of it. She's not talking to anybody. You could play, (laughs) you could play an organ over that and watch Buster Keaton do the same thing. But, ultimately... When all that's done, her staff tries to come to pick her up to take her to work, and she's like, no, I'm not going to do that, and Sam throws her secretary out, implying like that part of her life is over.
1: But at the same time, Sam tries to make the compromise of saying, you know, he doesn't want her to be Mrs. Sam Craig, he doesn't want her to be Tess Harding, he wants to be married to Tess Harding Craig where she can still have the career, he doesn't want
0: her to stop working,
1: but she just needs to like also pay more attention to him.
0: Right. I think this is perhaps illustrated far better in the movie's original ending. Oh, I'm sure.
1: Because you can tell that this scene just doesn't work. Yeah. And then also his anti-Gerald thing is also, I think, like weirdly gendered in that Gerald is a subservient male secretary to a woman.
0: Okay, but the guy who plays Gerald, Dan Tobin, is hysterical as like a very prim bow tie guy who just constantly looks down on Sam. And like the way that Sam weirdly tries to impress Gerald is always very funny. Like where Sam pretends to read a Chinese newspaper, it's good. And Gerald just openly hates him. But so the movie's original ending After Sam doesn't go to the woman of the year ceremony, because he's like, we've got to take care of this kid that you adopted on a whim.
1: The thing is, Sam makes sense because he's, he would have been fine if Alma, the housekeeper was there, but he was like, this seven-year-old boy who doesn't speak English probably should not be left home alone for several hours. Like the night that he arrived, basically. Right. It is absurd that they don't have a babysitter.
0: Right. So in the original ending, Tess goes off to get her award, Sam takes the kid back to the orphanage, and then Sam just, like, pieces out. Like, he goes missing. This comes up back at the newspaper office, because he's supposed to write a preview piece for the boxing championship that's coming up. None of this stuff about Tess's dad getting remarried is in the original ending. So instead, Tess takes his assignment to preview the boxing match. She, like, goes to a gym to learn about boxing, to teach herself that, so that she can do the job. And she's like, I'm gonna make sure, like, Sam's stuff gets covered. Meanwhile, then, you see Sam studying French and Spanish so that he can be important and, like, get on Tess's level. And then he sees a boxing article with Tess's byline, rushes to the actual fight, and, like, she's there covering the fight. She tells him that she did it to be a good wife, to support him, to help him out. And he says, just like in the final version, like, he didn't want either extreme. She should be a Tess Harding Craig. But it's, it, like, it gets at the same sentence, but it's framed through both of them succeeding professionally and both of them moving towards each other.
1: That actually feels more like a compromise.
0: Right. Right. The, the ending we get isn't a compromise. It's finding ways to force Tess into the box of a woman in 1942.
1: And it it feels less like him deciding her level of work, which puts him still in a position of power
0: over her. So that ending, the new ending that we get, the whole kitchen stuff, was not written by the credited screenwriters of the movie, who are Ring Lardner Jr. and Michael Kanan. Instead, while they were on vacation, (laughs) Louis B. Mayer and Joe Mankiewicz Brought in a new writer, John Lee Mahan, to rewrite the ending because they believed audiences would want Tess to basically be taken down a peg for being too strong in a man's world. So they were like, we gotta make her weak in a woman's role and then get her into that woman's role. And when the original screenwriters came back, they were allowed to like tweak dialogue but not change the structure of the movie. It's almost like surprising that Katherine Hepburn went along with this. Yes. Because like with Philadelphia Story, she's basically an uncredited producer on this movie. Like, she had director approval. She had casting approval. Mm
1: -hmm. She's
0: the one who brought the script to MGM. Like, she chose George Stevens because they had worked together on Alice Adams and Quality Street.
1: She was so cool.
0: Yeah, she's really cool. I do think, like, to some level, like, the messiness of the movie is reflective of, like, catherine hepburn's messiness as a figure which is partially a result of the culture she's living in right where like yeah she is defying a lot of gender norms but at the same time is always asserting like don't worry i'm not too crazy i'm a woman like don't look at this too hard
1: yeah i wear pants but she was someone who would say like she's not a feminist right um no that may have been someone else
0: yeah i don't know about that specifically obviously this character is an out and out feminist Yeah. yeah But the other big thing that happens for Katherine Hepburn in this movie is that she meets Spencer Tracy.
1: Uh, important.
0: Yes. This one is the could first, argue. This is the first of nine movies they did together. We've already covered their final movie, which is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And on this movie, they start an affair. Spencer Tracy was married. Hepburn never married anybody. And that basically becomes, like, an open secret for 25 years in Hollywood. Where, like, everybody knows they are basically in a relationship with one another. But Spencer Tracy stayed married for the rest of his life and didn't fully live with Hepburn until he was so sick near the end of his life that he, like, needed someone to take care of him.
1: I think it's also kind of funny that they are in this illicit, adulterous relationship with Spencer Tracy never getting divorced and also subject to rumors that they both are in same-sex relationships.
0: Right, there's the conspiracy theory that they are one another's beards. That it's like, well, if we have this like public affair, then no one will poke at anything else. Which, like, if you tell me that either or both of them had same-sex relationships in their life, I'll believe you. But I think it's also clear that the two of them had a very significant romantic relationship
1: my feeling on hollywood gay rumors of the mid-century is like a lot of these people probably were having sex with same gender partners
0: right our definition of what it means to be a homosexual today is very different from what it was then
1: right and then there are the people that were like pretty much out gay people in like the 30s and 40s still but i think most of it A lot of it's over-exaggerated in terms of them being, like, a gay person. Like, waving a rainbow flag. Yeah, because that concept just
0: didn't exist as much. The other big thing that's happening in this movie, of course, is that this is, in its own way, a World War II movie. Not in a forward sense, but the war is a backdrop to the movie. A key plot point centers around a Yugoslav refugee fleeing the Nazi invasion These Greek refugee children (laughs) fleeing the uh, invasion further south in the Balkans. At one point, when Tess learns there are two people from the newspaper covering the Yankees game, she makes a joke about how they have only one person covering Vichy France. But I do
1: think, like, the beginning of this movie did make me think of A League of Their Own. And the idea of her position of we shouldn't be supporting baseball because we have more important things to do. And his argument of, you know, like... This is what we're fighting for, so it's important that we have baseball going, is a very
0: interesting debate about the role of sports in society. Right, as a piece of culture unifying people. um, Woman of the Year wins Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, and this is very much like the first wartime Oscars, where there had been one in early 1942 after the attack on Pearl Harbor, but this is where like Hollywood has had a year to make war pictures. So, like, Mrs. Miniver wins Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress. Jimmy Cagney wins his Oscar for Yankee Doodle Dandy. There's a four-way tie in Best Documentary between four different, like, government-made war documentaries. Oh, my God. And they also, they nominated, like, 20 documentaries that year. They were like, screw it! And, most notably for me, this is the year that Der Fuhrer's Face wins Best Animated Short, which is the Disney short where Donald Duck has a nightmare about living in Nazi Germany.
1: So weird. It's good. Is it really?
0: Yeah, I show it to my classes. I have uh, the DVD set of all the Disney wartime propaganda.
1: Aren't they trying to kind of bury
0: that? Not really. I mean, it's not on Disney, but like they put out this DVD collection and like they're all introed by Leonard Walton talking about like what's going on in them. I think there's a misconception around that propaganda in general and frankly, Der Fuhrer's face in particular because of like dumb internet memes where like people love to share images on the internet of like Donald Duck saluting Hitler and being like wow Disney doesn't want you to see this and it's like no that short one in Oscar it's about how Hitler is bad and living under Nazism is bad
1: people love to misunderstand things on the internet
0: yeah that's the problem every once in a while I tell my wife like uh people are being wrong on the internet and I've decided to get mad at them about it (laughs) but the wartime thing is really interesting especially with George Stevens who directs this movie, he's handpicked by Katherine Hepburn. And before the war, he directed all kinds of stuff, right? He directed Gunga Din, so, like, he'd done adventure movies, he'd done issue dramas. But among other things, he is, like, a great director of women-fronted comedies. So, like, he's a natural fit for this. But as the war goes on, he gets, like, more and more uncomfortable just making these light movies like Woman of the Year, and at the same time like early in the war someone shows him Triumph of the Will and he's like oh crap like this is really good we need something to counter that. So in 1943, like not long after he's nominated for best director for Woman of the Year, he joins the Army Signal Corps and then his crew he would like was in charge of one of the film crews that filmed the Normandy landing, the liberation of Paris, the meeting of the US and Soviet forces and most significantly George Stevens directed the crew that filmed The Liberation of Dachau. Oh, wow. Yeah. He then was, like, hired by the Nuremberg court to make a pair of propaganda films. One of them was, like, explaining the Nuremberg trials and what they were about to audiences in the democratic world. And then he made an hour-long documentary titled Nazi Concentration Camps, which was used as evidence at the trials. Damn. So then he comes out of the war being like, I am not making these light comedies again. And he spends the rest of his career making like dramas, westerns, starts winning Oscars in this period. He wins Best Director twice for A Place in the Sun and Giant. Uh, He directed the Diary of Anne Frank movie. But like Catherine Hepburn by the 1950s was talking about on her end what a bummer it was that George Stevens came back from the war and like just would not make this kind of movie again. These kind of movies are important, though. Like baseball.
1: It is interesting that he made this, like, you know, directs this movie with the message of how important baseball is and doesn't recognize that even comedies are important, too.
0: I mean, I think on some level he still recognized that, but, like, after walking a camera through a concentration camp, he was like, this is not what my work can be.
1: I do think that that is also a very life-changing experience. Yeah. I mean, he probably had like PTSD and couldn't actually think that positively if he witnessed that.
0: Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. Uh, there's a really good book by Mark Harris, the great Mark Harris, uh, called Five Came Back about big name directors who went to work for the military during the war. It's like George Stevens, William Wyler, Frank Capra, John Ford, and John Huston. And it like walks through their time during the war and then how. Sort of all their careers responded to it after they came back. I think there's also a documentary on Netflix that adapts the book. So if you don't feel like reading a big book, you can watch the documentary. But
1: before he did that, he made this movie, which we should probably discuss the romance of.
0: Yeah, Woman of the Year is an out-and-out romance. So talking about the romance of this movie will mean talking about everything. So we should probably just get into it.
1: Right. Um, every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to guide conversations. This week, point number one, is the interesting non-in-person meeting of Tess Harding and Sam
0: Craig. Okay, this movie starts with a great, like, newspaper headline montage just of the career of Tess Harding, right? It's like, Tess Harding confers with Churchill. Three hour meeting. Details within. Or like, Tess Harding chats with Roosevelt. And it's going through all that, and it- It climaxes with this incredible shot that starts just on an advertisement for the the Daily Chronicle, or the New York Chronicle. Daily Chronicle's in The Muppet Creeper. The New York Chronicle, it says, Hitler will lose by Tess Harding. And then the camera pans over, and it says, Yanks will win by Sam Craig sports section.
1: A great joke. And so their relationship kicks off with Tess Harding on a radio interview disparaging
0: baseball and having baseball continue during the war effort. What happens is she's being like asked trivia for some reason. And as long as it's about world affairs, she's like, boom, boom, boom. Got it, got it, got it. And then they ask her the most frequently run distance in American sports. And she's like, I don't know anything about American sports. She's like many Jeopardy contestants. And um,
1: Sam is able to answer it. While hanging with his bros at the paper. At the bar. Oh, right. With his paper bros at the bar. The papes.
0: And after not knowing it, she then is like, well, I shouldn't have to know this because, like, baseball is stupid. It's a waste of energy. Everything should be focused on winning the war. Which is her general attitude, right? When she gives her speech to the women's group, she's like, if you care about women's rights, you should care about winning the war. Like, she very much is in with this, like, total war, everything towards victory attitude.
1: And she's also in connection with some brutal dictators at the same time.
0: Oh, you're talking about how she can get Fulgencio Batista on the line immediately?
1: Yes, that was, oh my god, what a name I was
0: not expecting to be (laughs) dropped in this movie. I know, especially when it's just like, get me Batista. At first, I'm like, there are a lot of Batistas, could be anyone. And then they go out of their way to be like, Colonel Fulgencio
1: Batista. As soon as they said Batista, I was just like, it's him. So Sam then responds with a column describing the importance of sports.
0: And he's like citing Lord Wellington, talking about how like the spirit and skill learned by playing sports at school trains young men to fight and win wars.
1: Which then she responds to in the paper. And now note that they are writing for the same paper. Like these are running in the same pages.
0: Right. At this point, I'm thinking about that uh, bizarre Julia Roberts, Nick Nolte movie, I Love Trouble, where they are both like fantastically wealthy newspaper columnists for dueling papers. But here it's the same paper. So on some level, Tess Harding is such a big name that her having a feud still might drive sales, but it's less ideal.
1: So she responds and then they have a, you know, montage of the papers with their back and forth articles and that brings us to where they first meet in person, as far as we know, when they're brought into a meeting by the editor-in-chief. How about it, Sam?
2: You ready to kiss and make up? I'll kiss, I don't know if I'm making up. How about you, Tess? Willing to quit? Sure. Okay? Fine. Thank you. <laughs> I'm always delighted
1: to quit when I'm losing.
2: i glad to be able to reconcile you two. Very glad. Uh-huh. Cooperation
0: is the essence of efficient organization. The
1: So they agree to
0: stop and... uh, Hepburn says, I don't mind stopping when I'm losing, which is a little odd to me because I didn't have the sense that she was losing. Unless she thought the Wellington quote was good. I
1: guess, yeah. I think that she probably was losing, to be honest, because people like baseball.
0: Right, she realized that she was wildly out of touch.
1: Yeah. So then after that, Sam invites her to a baseball game.
0: Yeah, he's like, you claim to speak for the American people. You have no idea who they are. Yeah, you are incredibly out of touch. What, Katherine Hepburn?
1: So let us go to this baseball game together. And she agrees. Yeah. I think she, even at this point, she finds him interesting.
0: Right, she's like, hey, I'll I'll go check this thing out. I would say she is skeptical, but she's also like, I have no frame of reference for this, and I'm willing to see what it's all about. Right. Right, like, she is not even aware of, like, the meanings of any baseball metaphors. The notion of three strikes and you're out is alien to her.
1: Yeah, he has to explain the most basic concepts of baseball.
0: And I guess, like, she was raised abroad, so she would not have been exposed to baseball metaphors to the same extent.
1: She was born and raised in China for the beginning of her life, I think.
0: She spent a while in the Argentine, she said.
1: Which then he corrects to Argentine. Yeah. Neither of which are, like... I mean, even at this point, I think it was Argentina.
0: Yeah. She talks about going to school in Switzerland and France. So it seems like she doesn't come back until her dad, like, gets a job at Maine State.
1: So she is there getting this all explained to her. Apparently no women are allowed in the press
0: box, but Sam's like, you all. Shut Um, up. (laughs) Shut up. She's wearing this enormous hat. It's really funny. The guy sitting behind her, Clearly cannot see behind her hat, but doesn't complain about it much. He mostly just yells at the umpire.
1: Well, I she does eventually take it off. I really did like when he was like, "Lady, your hat," and she just
0: goes, "Oh, thank you." Like right. he was complimenting her, but he never brings it up again. No, but, but she does take it off. Yeah, well, because what happens is she gets really into the game. Where at the in the first inning, she has no idea how points are scored. She has no idea like how outs function, but. By the ninth inning, she's, like, on her feet, grabbing on to Spencer Tracy, like, in the thick of it. She doesn't
1: understand it. But she gets it she's fun. very excited.
0: I enjoyed it when she, when the game had a tie at the end of the ninth inning. And she was like, well, no meaningful result, but that was a good time. Let's all go home. She's very good-natured about it. Like, this was a charming diversion, and I'm glad to have been here.
1: I guess, oh, I should say that the baseball game was point two.
0: <laughs> okay. She leaves at the end of 9 innings because she has somewhere to be.
1: But she hands him her card and invites him to her apartment, leaving it vague. And so the next half, I feel like every thing has two beats in it almost, yeah. cuz it was like his world and now we're seeing her world. And so he shows up, he thinks it's a date, he brings flowers, like an enormous
0: box of flowers. And an, yes, it's very sweet when Tess's maid answers the door, and he sees the party through there, and he then, like, tries to hide the flowers so that he won't have shown up with them. He tries to just, like, leave them out in the hall, and it's this huge box. Yeah, because he wants to seem, um... He wants to seem sophisticated, right? He doesn't want to be the bum who doesn't know anything that's going on.
1: So he shows up, and she introduces him to everyone, and there's not a single person at the party speaking English, except for the joke we mentioned earlier.
0: There is the one guy who wears a turban and is ill-defined beyond that, who only says the word yes, who briefly tricks him into thinking they're having a conversation.
1: And so he sneaks out. But this brings us to point three, which is, uh, after this, somehow they are in love and get married.
0: (laughs) Okay. There is some time in the interim. There is. Like the next day, there's a bottle of champagne on his desk and an apology note from Tess, who clearly has realized like, oh, this was like a bad thing to invite this guy to. He was not going to fit in. My bad. Yeah. Like he goes up to her office to ask her out. She's like, look, I got a speech to give. And then I got to fly to DC. We can hang out in between. Which basically means he drives her to the airport. And when he asks her why she had him do that, her answer is like Well, I, I thought you might like to kiss me goodbye. Which is a cool line.
2: Hope we haven't ruined your day. Oh no, not
0: at no, all, not at all. After all it kept me off the streets and out of the pool rooms.
2: What's the matter, Sam? Nothing. Sure. Well, I, I I don't know, I can't quite figure you out. Well what are you trying to prove? Why am I here? Well, Sam I after
1: all, you know, little normal could have driven you down here. Why did you ask me?
2: Thought you might want to kiss me goodbye.
1: It is very sweet.
0: Right, it's like forward in a deniable way, like very 1940s and just great. Like before they get married, there's also the scene where they go to his favorite bar together. And that's where he hears her whole life story. He tells her, you didn't come home when your dad moved back to the U.S. Like I was there the day you came home, the day you came home to the U.S., was the day you saw baseball you really met the american people for the first time and then that night they go back to her place this like incredible apartment that she lives in and it's like hot in a haze code way it is quite heavily implied that they have sex but they they don't they like they it's don't. implied they're going to have sex yeah this is a movie with a lot of kissing and it's a bummer that it's all a haze code grab and stab
1: mhm
0: just like a firm peck of firmly closed lips because you just know those two could like have a great kiss. Real sexuality would like elevate this movie. And you know, these two can do it because in this one scene, it's so cool. The way that first she gets out of the cab and the cabbie's like, should I wait? And she just says like, why don't you let him go on? You can get the next one. And then they get up to her apartment and the way she just like, swings the door open and invites him in. Like, she's, like, luring him into a trap, but again, in a hot way. And it's just, like, the whole scene, then, is a triumph of black-and-white cinematography creating a mood, where you see them just as, like, shadows moving against each other, and you feel like they're about to bang. And then he leaves, and he basically says later on that he left because he was too into her.
1: And so they... Are falling in love, and because it is the 40s
0: and they've been in love for two days, they have to get married. I mean, her aunt did say on the day he drove her to the airport, like, hey, you should marry her. Like, just get it done. So they have the most bizarre wedding I've ever seen in a movie. Her secretary, uh, what's his name, Gerald? Gerald. Gerald, the great mean secretary, arranges their wedding to be in South Carolina because that's the state where it can happen most quickly.
1: Yeah, there's no, like, waiting period. And he basically finds, like, a random justice of the peace to do a ceremony.
0: The wedding happens. It happens, like, the next day. It's just Tess, her dad, her aunt who helped raise her, and Sam. Everyone else, like, immediately leaves after the wedding.
1: Even her, because she has to, like, deal with this potential arrival of a Yugoslavian, like, politician.
0: Right, who's on the run from the Nazis. So... Sam is just left alone on his own wedding night. And then they get home. The Yugoslav politician shows up with his entourage. Everyone else in Tessa's circle finds out he's there. So it becomes like another one of these international soirees where nobody speaks English. And this I love. Sam just starts inviting his friends over. He like calls up his bar buds and it's like, yeah, come on over. We'll have a great time. And so
1: this is like immediately after their wedding, you got the rising tension.
0: Because immediately we have Sam's resentfulness of Tess's behavior, and I think it's fair in this case, right? Tess is so focused. They couldn't even
1: like consummate their marriage,
0: right? Tess is so focused on her like international circle of like diplomats and chatterers that she's moved on from Sam immediately, and this becomes very typical with her, where she cares about Sam. But not really enough to ever prioritize him.
2: Well, what did you do after the game? I drove to the railroad station. That's where I bought my new hat. There's a hat store in the railroad station. It's the best one in Chicago. Chicago? Of course, I had a feeling at the time. That's really funny. What's funny? I was in Chicago yesterday. You were in Chicago? What are you? I a don't conference. get. A conference. The government called a meeting of all the meat packers, and I flew out. What time did you get there? About one o'clock. How long were you there? Oh, I left about quarter of six. Well, Well, I I got got through about 5.30. We could have come home together. Well, it just never occurred to me. There was so much going on. Well, why didn't it occur to you? It would have occurred to me. Well, I don't know why you're making such an issue out of it. How could I have gotten hold of it? Call the press box at Soldier's Field. I couldn't possibly have known that. So you see, your whole point's about nothing. Well, the point isn't whether we could have got together or not. The point is that you never even thought of it. How do you know I didn't? You just said you didn't. Well, all right. Yesterday, I wasn't anxious enough to be with you. So we're even. How do you figure that out? Because today you aren't anxious enough to be with me. If you were, you wouldn't waste all this time arguing.
1: He is slotted into the empty spaces in her life. Instead of adjusting her life... In any
0: way to acknowledge that she is married. Right. He is never a priority. And so like him bringing over all of his friends is partly so he has something to do. But it's also clearly partly to spite her. Like, how do you like it when it's overrun with these other people?
1: So they continue to kind of have spats?
0: Yeah. Every once in a while, he'll point out like, you ignore me.
1: And I mean, there is definitely the vibe of him expecting her to take care of him. Yes. Like, so there is understandable elements, but you also do get the sense, even at this point, that it's like the expectation of him having a wife.
0: Right. There's this scene where Sam is making eggs for himself and Gerald, the secretary, pops his head in and it's like, uh, Miss Harding would like to know if you are making eggs. And he's like, yes, I'm making eggs. And Gerald's like, well, Miss Harding would like some too.
1: She also said, if I want eggs to let you
0: know. And I do. So now he's making eggs for Gerald and Tess and himself. And like, there's the real legitimate rudeness of the way that was carried out. But you also feel Sam's gender role-based resentment of the whole thing.
1: It is very interesting. There is such a, like, understandable position on both sides. And I want to, like, there are times where I'm like, I want to support you, Sam, but you also got to stop being such a dick.
0: That's the thing. I think on some level, Tess behaves worse, but Sam's attitude is worse. That's a really good way of phrasing it. So, like, these kinds of, as you put it, these kinds of spats just keep on escalating. There's the point where she gets home and he realizes they had both been in Chicago for work. And he's like, why didn't you tell me you were in Chicago? We could have flown back together. That would have been nice.
1: And she was basically like, I didn't have time.
0: Yeah, didn't occur to me. I didn't know how to get in touch with you. He's like, I was at the football stadium. There's one.
1: And so this kind of brings us to point four, which is where we hit the peak of their tension and the arrival of Chris.
0: Yeah, Chris, the Greek boy, does not speak any English. She's like, well, you wanted a child. Here you go. He loves baseball.
1: I guess we should have also pointed out that as part of this, he moves into her place. Like he moves into her apartment. Which
0: he hadn't really wanted to do, but she's like, I've got a lease, this is a great spot, like, we don't have to move.
1: Again, like, slotting him in, and it seems that his room is her office, which is not cleared out to make room for him.
0: There is some kind of bed in it, because we see George, the Greek boy, lay stuff out on a bed.
1: Yeah, they move Chris into the office when he arrives. Right, Chris. Um, So then... This is when we also find out that she has won the
0: American Outstanding Woman of the Year. Which is, I guess, a promotion. Because when we are first learning about her through conversation at the bar, we're told she's the number two dame in the country besides Mrs. Roosevelt.
1: Yeah, so apparently she's crossed over into number one. Take that, Eleanor. And so they're getting ready to go to the gala. And Sam realizes, like, wait a minute, we can't leave this kid here. Yeah. Sam does seem excited for her. Yeah. At first. Until she's like, oh, we shouldn't leave this seven-year-old alone. Which, fair. Right. So he takes the kid back. And so he returns the kid to the orphanage, which... Let's be clear. For store credit. This movie is the first time where that is presented as a good thing. Right. And you understand, because this poor Greek boy who doesn't speak English is now spending all of his time with two working adults... Who have are no barely time for living him, together with no friends. And so he is excited to be in a place where he can speak Greek with
0: other boys his age and like have friends and hang out. Right. I love when the director of the Greek refugee boys home tells Sam like, yeah, normally we only allow adoptions if you take two or if you already have kids. Like we don't want one weird kid living with a childless adults.
1: And she's like, well, I only made an exception because it was Tess Harding. And so she's not, like, thrilled at the idea of him returning the kid.
0: You don't want to set that precedent right after you started sending the kids out.
1: But she's understanding. And after this, this is where he, like, packs up and leaves. So Tess comes home, finds him gone, finds Chris gone, goes to the Greek refugee support orphanage to try and, like, get Chris back probably just because it would look bad on her. And so when she gets there, Chris refuses to go. Which, fair. Which, fair. He has spoken to people for the
0: first time in a few days.
1: So at this point, basically, they are separated.
0: And occasionally she tries to talk to him at work, and he is clearly just not interested.
1: Yeah, he is very much the driver of the separation.
0: Yeah, there's a moment where she... Talks about, like, look, yeah, so, you know, we didn't have the perfect marriage, but we can figure something out. And he goes, I don't think it was either. It wasn't perfect or a marriage. And this brings us to point five, which is where she goes
1: home to Connecticut and we get the end that we talked about earlier.
0: Yeah, so she gets a telegram inviting her and Sam up to visit her aunt.
1: If you know what's good for you.
0: Right. (laughs) Which you assume is going to be about, like, a talking to about, like, you two kids need to figure it out. Yeah. But it's not. It's just like a joke threat.
1: Sam refuses to go, so she goes alone and witnesses the marriage of her father and her aunt, who seem to have basically been married since her mom died.
0: Yeah. It's clear also that her dad became interested in this based on a conversation he had with Sam, where he was talking about how much he liked Sam from spending time with him, like going to football games, but also... Like, seeing his daughter married and being like, this is a good thing. Like, I I should have something like this in my life. But I will say, that scene of Sam and his father-in-law hanging out is there. This wedding nonetheless feels like it comes out of nowhere.
1: It does. And so she witnesses the wedding, and they go through all of this stuff about, you know, like, loving and honoring and cherishing and obeying. And she's just like, oh no, I'm a bad woman. I should have been a wife and quit my job. And this is when she
0: goes home and tries to... She finds Sam's new house.
1: Uh, Right. So she finds Sam's new house, convinces the super to let her in, where she attempts to make breakfast. Sam should have gotten up and investigated the strange noises in his kitchen
0: earlier than he did. It is very funny watching her, like, set an egg timer that she thinks is the temperature on the oven. But yeah, like, the more and more weird noises that come out, and he just stubbornly stays in bed. I don't know what was going on with him.
1: So then. They have the conversation, which we talked about earlier, where it ends with him saying, you know, you don't have to be Miss Tess Harding. You don't have to be Mrs. Sam Craig. You can be Tessa Harding Craig.
0: He also smashes Gerald on the head with a bottle of champagne. Yeah.
1: Off screen. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. Will, do you find the romance believable?
0: I mean, not really, right? They they get married far too quickly. And it's like, it's almost too bad in a way that is a little hard to believe. I, yeah, I just really don't believe it. The movie requires you to believe that it's basically a love at first sight situation. That once they stop the sparring over whether baseball is a threat to the war effort, that Tess is so smitten with him that she's ready to throw everything out in the span of a couple of days.
1: And it's just like, he's not that charming.
0: (laughs) No, he's Spencer Tracy, who I love, but like One of the things you love about Spencer Tracy is that he is a grump.
1: Yeah. So it really doesn't make sense. The ending doesn't make sense. The middle doesn't make sense.
0: (laughs) A lot of it's fun. I think there are a lot of good lines in it.
1: Yeah. But um, where would you rate it on a scale of one to ten?
0: I don't know. This is like a four for me. Yeah, I was thinking like a three even. I love to watch it. The only
1: reason it's like a three is because of the chemistry of Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. I want to see a real kiss. But do you find uh, Sam or Tess dateable?
0: I mean, not really, as much as I'd like to. We've seen what being in a relationship with Tess is like, and it stinks.
1: And we've seen what being in a relationship with Sam is like, and it also stinks.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately, no. Do I think they'll stay together? I have no idea. Honestly, Um, They shouldn't be together. Right, that's the thing. I think they'll continue to bounce off each other for a long time. Like, I think the yo-yo of this movie will recur. And it might be for different durations at different points in time. But, like, this movie does not end settled.
1: So, I think they get separated and back together, like, ten more times.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying.
1: And then I do think they will die married, even if they both have affairs along the way. Kind of like
0: Spencer and Mrs. Tracy.
1: Yeah. If you did have to pick one person to date, who would you choose?
0: Okay, so my answer, I think, is Flo, who is the wife of Pinky, Sam's good friend. Is she the one that asks all the questions? Yes. So Sam's best friend is a former boxer named Pinky, who now owns the bar where Sam and the other newspaper guys hang out. Pinky's life's ambition is just to tell people about this one long fight that he was in. And Flo is his wife, who does not want to hear this story. When the story gets brought up at the wedding night party, and Pinky Peters starts telling it to the Yugoslav refugee, Flo is like, do not tell him this story. It will take forever. It is not interesting. Flo eventually starts chatting with Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, and is like, so what's going on exactly? She learns that they got married, and is like, why... Why are we all here then? And then she's the one who ultimately gets everyone to leave. And so I think Flo seems like a supportive friend. Someone who's willing to ask the right question. And the person who's willing to just like get done what needs to get done. I was thinking the
1: matron of the Greek refugee orphanage. Okay, sure. She seems very like nice and she was hesitant to allow a single greek child who doesn't speak english to be adopted which i think was a good
0: policy and i'm sure she was pressured from above no she's doing the right thing
1: she seems nice
0: all right uh mark one last question should woman of the year be adapted into a broadway musical
1: i don't really think so I think this is a story we can leave in the past, because it's mostly about a woman being put in her place. Okay, but what if you,
0: like, changed the jobs that they had?
1: So, like, she would be an actual politician?
0: Sure, or like like a TV personality.
1: Yeah. Has it already been adapted into a musical? Is that what you're (laughs) getting at?
0: It has already been adapted into a musical in 1981. Oh, wow. The Woman of the Year musical is about a female TV personality and a male newspaper cartoonist. Huh. The music is by Kander and Ebb. Okay. Who have as strong a a songwriting pedigree as you can get. And Lauren Bacall won a Tony for Best Actress for playing the Tess Harding part. Wow.
1: Okay. Fascinating.
0: Yeah. Was
1: the reception besides that good?
0: I got a bunch of Tony nominations. Yeah. It won Best Score. I think it might have won Best Book as well. It, like did quite well. Hmm. You know, just looking at uh, the Tonys, okay, it won Best Book, Best Score, Best Actress for Lauren Bacall, Best Featured Actress for Marilyn Cooper, and it was nominated for Best Direction and Best Musical, which it lost to 42nd Street. (laughs) Also an adaptation of a movie.
1: Yeah. Uh, This has been our first one that actually had an adaptation in a while.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think. The last one would have been... I mean, there's the Trolls, like, live show, but that's not quite the same thing.
1: Was the Philadelphia story adapted into a musical after the movie? Or
0: am I making that up? There's a stage play, but I don't think there's a musical.
1: Okay. I really don't know.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a Nightmare on Elm Street comedy one, but that's not the same thing.
1: Has there even been one this year? Uh, In 2023? That we've covered. Maybe Magic Mike. You could kind of (laughs) count.
0: I mean, but again, like, the Magic Mike... Stage show tripper show is like a prequel or something. Yeah. Like trolls, it is in continuity but not an adaptation.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Well so, listeners, if you know the answer, you can tweet at us at Love The Love Pod or Oh, there's a ghost musical. Us. Oh, there is a ghost musical. And Rocky
0: and Newsies. Three weeks in a row.
1: Well, oh, cause Newsies movie came first first.
0: That's right. I was thinking it was the other way around. Weird that the Greatest Showman stage musical hasn't happened yet. Oh, it will. I guarantee you, like, some school has put on an illegal Greatest Showman stage version. I wonder if the Legally
1: Blonde musical will include Courtney Take a Break.
0: They're making a movie of the Legally Blonde musical, too. Am I right? Are they? I don't know. I mean, the big thing is that, like, as this episode comes out, I believe the Mean Girls musical movie will be out. Maybe they aren't.
1: But I have seen multiple videos where the person who says, Courtney, take a break in the store scene has made that line really big because of the terrible middle school production that is on YouTube. Good.
0: Um, yeah, I'm not seeing anything from our illustrious friends at Wikipedia. I may have just been thinking of the Mean Girls musical. There is a like recording of the Broadway cast. That you can see, but I don't think there is a feature adaptation.
1: I'm sure it will happen, depending on the success of the Mean Girls musical. Yeah, it depends on how
0: Mean Girls does. That movie's got the weirdest marketing, where the the movie's marketing is like, don't worry, it's the Mean Girls you know and love. Also, it's cool now, but it's definitely not a musical. And the lead is Regina George. Well,
1: that's because, isn't Renee Rapp playing Regina George? Yes. Yeah, I think it's because she's more famous than whoever is playing Katie.
0: It's just it's just a weird marketing campaign.
1: It is. Well, I think that does it for this week.
0: All right. Uh, I am delighted to have seen this movie. What a treat.
1: Next week, we will be discussing the film Brokeback Mountain, returning to Ang Lee, who we have not visited in a while.
0: It'll be our first English-language Ang Lee, actually. We've done Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon.
1: Oh, yeah. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod and email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelepod at gmail
0: Please make sure to rate review and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show.
1: All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Woman of the Year?
0: I mean, I think ultimately what the movie tells us is that you don't have to be a very good cook to land a partner. And I think that's a handy thing to keep in mind. But you might make a fool of yourself if you're really bad.
1: I think my advice is if you start dating in the workplace, make sure that you're not impacting the output of your
0: product. Don't let your dating tank the business. Yeah, basically. All right. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So
1: between the two of us, we and know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Night. Yeah. We'll have some bad times. Probably we'll have some rough days. Possibly. But we'll survive them. Hopefully. And easy or not, we're going to give it a shot. We'll do some growing up.
1: And some seeds.